0: Before we begin, a disclaimer. This podcast is for information only. I am not a mental health or medical professional, nor are my guests unless otherwise stated. My guests and I do not speak for or represent any recovery programs or workshops. I do not sell ads on this podcast, and I do not make any money from it. And finally, I want to warn you that some episodes may contain content about emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, which some listeners may find triggering or dysregulating. Hello, and welcome to the Loving Parent Podcast. If you're new here, this is where we explore the ideas of becoming our own loving parents and reparenting our trauma to build resilience. If you've been here before, welcome back. My name is Brita, and I'm your host. This is part two of my interview with Richard. Welcome back,
1: Richard. Well, thank you, Brita.
0: (laughs) (laughs) In our last episode, we talked about your childhood. We talked about some of the trauma that happened to you with being molested by your grandfather, being taken into a family that you didn't know and taken away from the farm, Um, being expected to welcome your father home when you were a two- or three-year-old and you didn't even know him. Uh, School wasn't fun, and you attempted suicide twice. Once when your appendix burst and you went and hid, and then again the night you graduated from high school, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Drove down a hill and off the road into a canyon. And didn't die either time. Oh. Thank goodness. Yep. So what got you into recovery? What was the, the catalyst?
1: Well, I had met a woman who was married. And we started a relationship. And I told her uh, not to get too involved here and she got involved and so did I and she left her husband and I woke up one morning in her apartment thinking there's not enough beer in the world for me to drink and get drunk that I'm gonna live through this because I had been what I thought I was happily married and somebody pointed out that I was gay and that seemed to be the answer to my life that I didn't want. And I thought, I don't want to do this again. I've been down this road before, been married and found out it's not going to work. So I just got up and left, moved out that morning while she was at work. So she came home to a house with all the beer was gone and I was gone. (laughs) Uh, And that's pretty much how I ended it. And then I was, like, thoroughly disgusted with my life. I was 40, 41 years old. And I was looking for the answer to my life. I'd looked in the Bible. I read it, like, five times one summer and could not find my answer anywhere. So I was laying in bed one night drunk, and I just told God to go fuck himself. I was going to drink myself to death, and if God wanted my life to be any different, it was up to him, and this was the God that I believed in at that time, kind of a pseudo-Christian God. And I just settled down to drink and die. Probably about nine months to a year after that, I got into recovery. So that was a big, that's what guided me down that road. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. And uh, tell us about the night that you remembered that you had been molested by your grandfather cuz you had no conscious memory of this at all yeah, right
1: I had no conscious memory of it it's something would happen some kind of little incident and i would get it in my head that something was going on that shouldn't be going on and so i would just block it out i would just pretend like that really wasn't happening so there were no conscious memories prior to uh I had a dream one night. A dream, I'm not sure. Anyway, it was uh, at a Brita's house. At my house. At that's her right. house. And we were dozing off to sleep, and all of a sudden I fell in this big black hole. There was all kinds of bright lights in it, and I was falling through space. And then all of a sudden, uh, it popped up that I was homosexual. And uh, that was it. That was it. And I was homosexual and I didn't belong here. So I told you I had to get out of here. I remember I asked if I could that. borrow your car. Yes. And I was riding a motorcycle at the time, so I packed my belongings into her car, drove the car to my place, dropped the stuff off, brought the car back, got my bike, and rode home. And I had a 38 at that time and uh, i loaded it and i laid down on the floor it's about three three o'clock in the morning and i thought okay i'm not doing this again let's just get it over with and get out of here and i big richard was my sponsor at the time so i told myself we'll just wait till morning call big richard and see what he says so i called him up and told him and part of the thing was there was homosexuality in my grandfather Those two things were really big in that, um, whatever it was I had, nightmare. And I told him about it, and he said, well, I don't want to call you anything, but you sound like you might be an incest survivor, and I'm going to suggest you get some professional help. And as soon as he said it, I knew that's what I needed to do. It was like when he told me, you know, go to some AA meetings and see what I thought. As soon as I thought, it's like, okay, I'm an alcoholic. This was the same thing that, you know, something had happened to me. I wasn't sure what it was, but we're going to find out. And we'll just wait and call around, find a therapist, and start working on it.
0: When you started having these memories about being molested by your grandfather, do you remember telling anybody, even trying to tell anybody when you were little?
1: No. No. No, but I always kind of had a feeling like my mom might know. But she never said anything. I never said anything. I don't ever remember trying to talk to anybody about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. And tell us about the night that you did tell your mom, when you and mm-hmm. I went out with your mom and dad, I think to Coco's.
1: Mm-hmm. We Coco's were... up in Claremont. Yeah. And probably been in recovery two, three years. And wanted to com- confront my mom on her dad molesting me. And so we met up there and you know kind of like little pleasantries and then i just started in on it the first thing she said was i knew you were gay i knew you were gay you lied about it you were gay it's like right because i told her i'd been living a gay lifestyle and she just laughed and said she knew it and i'd been lying about it and i never thought i was lying about it because i never really felt like i was gay i didn't want to be gay but if i was then that would be okay, but there was just something inside that goes, that's not you, you know that's not who you are, that's not what you're about so then I said, "You know, your father molested me, he started molesting me when I was three years old, and she laughed again, and she said that I always lied about everything, that it wasn't her dad, that it was a guy named Lawrence, Uncle Lawrence, and he molested everybody, and I just looked at her and I thought so you've known all the time that i've been molested and you've never talked about it you've never said anything about it until i say something and then as soon as i say something you tell me i'm lying not lying about it happening or not happening but lying about who did it so my memory is it was my grandfather and kind of the way i look at it is if my memory is confused it was uncle lawrence doesn't make any difference, it still happened. Somebody molested me, my mother knew about it and she didn't do anything.
0: Okay, so shortly after that, you started a program called Parents, parents United and that was run by the county here.
1: Yep, the county ran it. They, the organization took kids out of the home that were being abused sexually. And then they made the parents caretakers go to these classes. And so they would, the the kids they dealt with separately, the adults they dealt with all together. The group that I was in that spent most of the time in was a mixed group, men and women, and it had partners of incest, perpetrators of incest, and victims of incest, all adults in the same room. And I think another friend of mine who had gone through incest recovery, she had gone through the same program and said it helped her a lot, so I tried it. And it did. One night I was there and we sat in these little desks that kids have in school with a little seat and a flat top. And I was sitting there and I got really cold, started shivering, my chair started shaking. And the facilitator of the group, he asked me what was going on. And I said, I'm trying to get out of my body. And he said, why? And I said, that guy over there is my grandfather's twin brother. And he was. He had molested his granddaughter. That's why he was there. And the next week, I brought a picture of my grandfather. and, And they were twins, like identical twins. You couldn't tell the difference in the two of them. And that was a really big point in my recovery. That was probably the most vivid reaction response that I had to it. Most of the time, it was something that I could talk about. There wasn't a lot of emotion in it. But that particular night was real powerful. And it just helped validate what had happened in my life and how I dealt with it.
0: So validation seems to be a, a theme that's gone through your recovery. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to you and, and how you pass that on to other people too?
1: Well like i feel about myself now i'm me i know who i am i know what i want to do i know where i'm going i know why i'm going there it's i don't have doubt maybe once in a while a little but i don't have doubt that overwhelms me and that's the way it used to be my grandfather told me the one that molested me that i was too pretty to be a boy that i was a little girl and i had Identity issues all of my life. It's like I wasn't, never was close to anybody. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare get close to anybody for fear of being hurt. I would be who people wanted me to be, Um, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, like the whole therapist thing. It wasn't really therapy. He did counseling, but All he did was molest me and I lived with him because he told me I was gay. And at least I was bisexual. And he even wrote a letter to my wife, explaining to her that that's what was going on in my life. And she carried that letter around with her until the day she died. So it caused me a lot of issues of not knowing who I was, maybe not wanting to be who I was. So I always looked for somebody to tell me what I was supposed to do and when I got tired of it I would leave. Wouldn't do that anymore. So what recovery has taught me is I'm the one that knows who I am and nobody else does. People can tell me who they think I ought to be but that's just their thoughts. It has nothing to do with me whatsoever so i tell people it's like i don't have the answers to your life you may want me to tell you what i think but i'm not going to do that because this is your thing i'm here to walk along with you here to hold hands if you want to and most of all here to validate you as a human being i don't care what it is it's all you just like it's all me and only i can see those things. Only I understand them. Only I experience them. Nobody experiences them for me and I can't do that for anybody else either.
0: Do you remember the night that you were walking the dog out on the beach and you came home and told me that you had had a, a realization and kind of like you felt grown up for the first mm-hmm. time about yeah. realizing some things about your life?
1: Yep. Uh, very distinctly. It was down um, the beach with my dog came walking up. It was a full moon. And I remember looking up at the moon thinking, I've grown up. I've actually grown up. I can't tell you how many times people would ask me, When are you going to grow up? And my response was, Never. I'm not going to grow up. And eventually, you know, I learned I was stuck at the age of three, hadn't moved there, moved from there. And here I was, 50 years old, and it actually felt like i was 50 years old first time in my life i ever felt like i was me <laughs> that we were all together in one place we weren't scattered around the world the universe you know hither and yon i was there and it was a really comforting powerful feeling
0: so that was about 10 years into recovery yep, 10 this years. this does not happen overnight no. right
1: nope. No, I used to think it would happen real fast, and I remember this one good friend I had, she was an incest survivor too, and she kind of dealt with her stuff, and she used to tell me, I'm so glad I don't have to deal with this anymore, and then about two years after that, she went into a complete meltdown and didn't get out of bed for about two years until she processed being molested and uh,
0: so she knew it on an intellectual level but had never really felt it intellectually
1: she understood and emotionally never went down that road and that was with me in the beginning it was intellectual and then it got to emotional i used to scream i would act out killing people it was like how did you do that Well, (laughs) I can remember my, my mother, one day I found a piece of rubber and I was probably about a year into recovery and I found this little piece of rubber and made up that it was my mother and I started stabbing it with a knife and that wasn't satisfying, so then I started chewing a piece of it off and spitting her out and when I got done, I felt like, okay, she's dead, she's gone. And I went home, and at the time I had a beard, and I shaved my beard off. It's like, okay, it's all right for me to be me, I don't need to have a beard to be somebody else. And I had to do that with her over and over and over again in different forms. My grandfather, the same way. One time, I was up in the mountains, and I had a doll that I pretended like was my grandfather. And so I urinated on it, poured gas on it, lit it on fire, had my 38, and just shot the doll to pieces and then buried it. And that was me killing my grandfather, separating myself. And I had to do that for many years just to get all the rage inside of me out. Not actually take it out on anybody. Prior to that, it would be, I would look for somebody to hurt. But this was all about getting the demons out of me that were real. So.
0: I know before you met me, you were bald and you wore heavy gold chains around your yeah. neck. And it always looked to me like you were spoiling for a fight.
1: Always. Not a fight. Somebody to kill. And to let them know that if they didn't stop, I'd kill them. If, if they stopped resisting, then I'd let them go. But if they kept resisting, I'd be happy to kill them and i didn't know why i just had this rage inside of me and uh, i would go to like punk rock concerts and i wear a gold chain and a twenty dollar gold piece i'd take my shirt off and i just dare somebody to grab it and nobody ever touched it ever it was like i must have emanated this ugliness that people knew just stay away from it
0: do you remember um the time that you confronted your dad the last time he tried to hit you
1: Oh, yes.
0: How old were you then? I was
1: 17, and I had gotten my girlfriend pregnant, which I wanted to do, and wanted to marry her. But I wasn't old enough. I had to have my parents' permission to sign the documents. So I wasn't living at home at the time, and I went up there, and uh, my mom started calling my girlfriend a bitch, and uh, just what a horrible human being she was. And I told my mom to go fuck herself, and my dad just grabbed me. And I turned around and grabbed a hold of him. And I just pinned him to a brick fireplace and looked him right in the eye. And it's like, you're done. If you're not done, you're gonna die. And so he just kind of melted right there. He didn't resist anymore. And I walked over to the front door, kicked it open and left. And that was the last time I ever went in that house. It's like I was done with that. My dad didn't ever say anything about it. I was 17 and when I was about 33, 34, my brother and I were trying to throw him into a pool up at their house, my mom and dad's house. And my dad, he got me in a choke lock uh, around my throat with his in his arm and he wasn't going to stop. I couldn't breathe. And I thought, he's going to kill me right here. And I thought, and he finally let go. And he said, that'll teach you to fuck with your old man. And I thought, this is going back to when I was 17. He's getting back at me for that. And it's like, you know what? I had the courage to do you face to face. You can't even look me in the eye and do this. And, uh, that was a big point in our relationship. So of all the tools that you learned
0: in recovery, whether it was from meetings or a therapist, what do you think were the most powerful tools for you in dealing with your issues and growing up, bringing that little kid inside of you
1: to an adult? R- writing, writing stuff down, and then... When I wrote about it, I shared it with somebody. That whole process made it real. It, once again, it validated me. It validated what had happened in my life, which was very important because up until that point, I couldn't tell you what was real and what wasn't. i get into some real problems from time to time mentally with that. The writing thing was, for me, very, very powerful.
0: There is something about seeing it on paper, getting it out of oneself and putting it down on paper and looking at those words.
1: That's always what I tell people. It's like it comes out of me, it goes down onto the paper, and then I talk to somebody and that whole process makes it real. And it's like, I can say, well, that was a lie because I did that more than once, I would It wasn't when I'd write something down, but I'd tell somebody something. Then I'd call them back and say, you know, that was a lie. That really didn't happen. And it really did. And I could take it back that easy. But when you write it, it's there on the piece of paper. You can't take it off the piece of paper. You can't put it back inside of yourself. At least I was never able to.
0: So you have been in recovery now over 35 years. Yep. We've known each other most of that time, Yes. which has been a real treat. Yes. From this perspective, what would you say to a newcomer, to somebody who's just learning about dealing with childhood issues, becoming their own loving parent, the process of reparenting? What would you say to a newcomer?
1: What I tell people is, you've already done this. Whatever it is you're going to experience here, you've already been there. It's already happened. We're always dealing with past events. So, we came up with a solution to deal with the past event. Now we need to go back to the past event and redo it. Come out of it with a different solution, one that's healthy. That's the biggest thing, one that's healthy. And there isn't any other way to do it. You can't, like, skip it, and not do certain things. and you're not going to be complete. You're not complete until all the things come out, get revisited, and then they get put away somewhere, stored. I tell people everything that ever happened to me as a part of me. There's a, a saying in one program says, We will not wish to shut the door on our past. And for me, that was the very first thing I did. I tried that for a while. First thing I did when I got into recovery was change my name from Dick to Richard. I had been Dick for 40-some years, and all of a sudden, I wanted to be Richard. I didn't want to be Dick. Didn't want to talk about Dick. Just totally forget about him and move on, and let's just start a new life. And I found out can't do that. You know, I had to deal with Dick. I had to validate Dick. I had to love Dick. I had to love Dick, let him be a part of me like he is. So I always tell people that's like, you've already done this. You did it once, you can do it again. It'll be painful. But once it's done, it's done. And it's not gonna bother you anymore. And you will be integrated. You will be an integrated human being. And all of those parts, No matter how you feel about them, they make you who you are. So it's a lot of acceptance.
0: Yes, it is. And do you ever tell people that you're working with as a sponsor, do you ever suggest they get professional help?
1: All the time. Yep, I'm a big believer in professional help as an individual and as a member, (laughs) you know, part of the couple relationships that I have with my wife. It's like, we have a relationship, and if the relationship's not going well, that usually means that one of us is not dealing with our life. So I always say, as long as I work on me, she works on her, then we can work on our relationship. But if I'm not willing to work on me, or she's not willing to work on herself, then our relationship is not going to work. And That's through therapy. Do individual therapy, couples therapy, group therapy. Do as much as you want. But I'm a big believer in therapy.
0: Me too. And we're old enough now that we've actually retired a therapist. So More than one. (laughs) Yeah, more than one. So there may be a time where we have to go look for another one. And that's okay. Um, It's an important thing to do for us. So looking back at the age of 77 you just had a birthday last week and 35 plus years in recovery is there anything you'd like to say to end this this interview
1: i i feel like i'm happy with my recovery i am happy with my life happy with myself and i really enjoy sharing that with other people especially people in recovery who are doing recovery and who will take the chance or the opportunity to uh, let me be a part of their life, to let me into their life, to let me listen to their life, to let me witness to their life and to watch them grow and become the people that they wanna be, to find the answers that they're looking for and to find answers they didn't even know they had there's a one particular individual that I talk to every Saturday and we've been talking every Saturday at one o'clock for the past probably eleven years. And we've seen each other twice in eleven years. So it's it used to be on the telephone, now it's on Zoom meetings. But we've been doing this for for eleven years. And I just marvel at the process. And this individual can look back now and see that in the beginning what it was like and how uncomfortable he was But now he too has gotten comfortable with the process of finding himself of being able to look at himself being able to accept himself and See where he's going to be a part of where he's going and not to be afraid of it and not to be uncomfortable with the unknown So to me, that's the biggest thing that I get the opportunity to do is directly participate in other people's recovery. And then sometimes, uh, probably still directly, but just listening to people at doing a meeting and hear them change and grow. They may not even know they're changing, but I can hear the change like I think many people can. So I think that's it.
0: Okay. I want to say that I met a very angry middle-aged man who was still an angry little boy, and now I'm married to one of the most gentle people I know, one of the most loving men I've ever met. So thank you for being with us today. I really appreciate your letting me interview you.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining me for this episode. It was produced by me, Brita Firm, and edited by Vaughn David. Our music is by Emmanuel Wild. If you like what you heard, please leave a positive review and tell a friend. Also, tap subscribe and notifications so you won't miss a single episode. Remember, as you walk your reparenting path, you can take your time. You deserve all the love you want, and my love goes with you.